turn to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 1. We are starting a new series uh, in the book of Numbers. Uh, yeah, woohoo. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you, and here's the thing, like, don't feel bad, okay? Because, you know, so don't like raise your hand, just be like, oh, no. How many of you have actually read the book of Numbers before? Okay. So, all right, so thus, the reason we're doing a sermon series through the book of Numbers, right? So, uh, and I don't say that to, like, make anyone feel bad or anything like that, because if you have read the book of Numbers, you know that the book of Numbers is a pretty difficult book to read, um, not because it has a lot of big words and deep concepts and topics, um, but let's just be honest, when you start reading it, you're like, wow. I would rather read something else. Um, it opens with like these genealogies and different things like that. And really, it can be difficult for us to read it and be like, all right, like, what's the point in what I'm reading, right? Um, so what, I, what we want to do is we want to say, hey, look, if, you know, Scripture says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, right? So if we want to say, all right, all Scripture is profitable for teaching, then we want to make sure that we are actually reading all of Scripture, Right? Not just like the ones, because I think a lot of times we say like, hey, like, oh, I'm going to read my Bible today. What we do is we go to verses that we've read a million times, and we read those, and then there's portions of Scripture that we've never read before, and we just kind of ignore them, right? And then we're curious why we're not growing. Well, maybe because you're not <laughs> reading things you haven't read before, right? So, uh, so that's kind of what we're wanting to do. We're wanting to kind of push ourselves a little bit. So while you're finding Numbers chapter 1, I want to kind of open with a little bit of an introduction um, January 1st, 1863. Um, does anyone know what happened on January 1st, 1863? That's okay if you don't. Huh? Okay. So January 1st, 1863, Pre President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation that declared all persons held as slaves in the United States were to be freed. Uh, you... I don't have to say this. A lot of you already know this. Uh, slavery is a, is a black eye in the history of America, right? It's probably the, it's the worst thing whenever we think about, like, the, the American, you know, American history and all this stuff. Like, there's this glaring spot that no one is proud of. Some terrible sins committed against other people. January 1st, 1863 was the proclamation that slavery in the United States was to end. It was not fully experienced, though, until June 17, 1865, when the final slaves were officially freed in Texas. This day is dubbed Juneteenth and is considered the longest-running African-American holiday in the United States. It became an official holiday, actually, an official federal holiday, actually, this past June, in uh, June 2021. And freedom from, freedom from the bondage of slavery was, of course, met with an incredible amount of initial joy, right? The slaves in America, when they heard that they were freed, there's, of, of course, an immense amount of joy. Could you imagine, right? Of course. Booker T. Washington, a man that was born into slavery and later became an author and an advisor in the White House under Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, he recounted that many slaves were joyful at first, but then they began to become very worried about their future. This is a quote from Booker T. Washington. He said, after they had remained away for a time, many of the older slaves especially returned to their old homes and made some kind of contract with their former owners by which they remained on the plantation. And many, of us, many of the slaves that were freed 
chose to return to their masters. Many left after Many left those plantations, and after a few weeks, months, and for some even years, they eventually came back and struck a deal with their old masters to allow them to stay on the plantation in exchange for shelter and provision. And when you hear this, no doubt what's racing through your mind is just like, why? Right? I mean, if you've read in school or if you've been to these historical places where slavery was going on, and you see just the terrible conditions that these men and women and children were forced to live in. You're like, why would they go back to that? I mean, they were freed from that. Why would they possibly go back? Why wouldn't they just leave and and attempt to make something of their life? Anything could be better than bondage of slavery. And for many, the thought of leaving what they knew was terrifying. They felt that they had nowhere to go, if you think about it. They had nowhere to go. They felt like refugees with no home, no money, no way to provide for themselves. And while some of this was fabricated by their masters trying to to scare them into leaving, for many, it was often the case. For many freed slaves, they had nowhere to go. Another former slave, Anthony Dawson, said that the liberation from slavery was like being left without protection. In the years following, many former slaves will die due to starvation, disease, and violence. Census numbers of the, in the United States taken right after this show that many African Americans died from the emancipation in the two or three years after Juneteenth. Some of you are like, what in the world does that have to do with the book of Numbers? What does that have to do with what I'm going to talk to you about tonight? Because I'm going to tell you something, that as a student pastor, I've seen, you know, I see a lot of things kind of happen in cycles, right? I've been, uh, I've been this, officially the student pastor like almost, it's been like two and a half years, I think. Yeah, I think it's two and a half years, uh, which feels like forever, but it's just just two and a half years. Um, I started serving with the student ministry here at Central eight years ago. Um, I was a I was a, an intern. I was like a sophomore in college, and I started like folding bulletins and stuff like that in the office. Um, but I've been around students long enough to see that there's a lot of things that kind of that just happen. They happen quite frequently, and because of this, when I became student pastor, there were some things that I really wanted to focus on. I hope, you, I hope you guys see this, and you don't need to tell me or anything, but I hope you see that. But one, I truly do try my best to address things that I see as reoccurring issues for young people. I really try to address the questions that nobody seems to wants to, an- wants to answer. I try my best to explain things that nobody seems to like to explain, no matter how important they are. And I try to warn you about the mistakes that I see people make all the time. Not just people, but like people that have sat in the same seats that you're sitting in. I've seen them make mistakes, and I try to warn you about those mistakes. For many pastors and Christians, about 90% of the time when they're sharing Christ with people or when they're teaching or whatever, most of their energy and effort is focused on this idea of like, you know, hey, like being forgiven of your sins which is incredibly important, right? Right? Anybody there? Right? It's important. It's important for us to be, have this idea of the forgiveness of our sins, being made right with Christ. It's the most important thing we could possibly talk about. See, the freedom from the bondage of sin and death that we have because of the death of Jesus on the cross for you and for me is something that we should just never get over that. We should constantly find joy in that truth, and it should fill us with joy all the days of our lives. But with that being said, 
I do believe that for many young people, what life looks like, right, what life looks like after this conversion experience is pretty blurry and difficult to navigate. Right? So, like, you know, we're excited about this idea of being freed from the bondage of sin, but after a while, there's this nagging question of, like, okay, now what? And some of you have probably asked this question yourself, right? Like, maybe you all right, talk about this idea of, all right, like, I'm saved, cool. Mm, now what? Now what? Some of you that are like, you know, maybe if you're pursuing dating right now, you know, like, the, you know, the chase of dating is fun. You know? Did you hear? They like you. Oh, get out of here. Right? You're like, are you serious? And then you're like, oh, well, tell them I like them too. But don't tell them that I like them. Just tell them that you know somebody that likes them. You know what I'm saying? You know, like, don't make it too easy, right? But that chase is exciting. And then you're like, oh, man, you fall for each other. And then you start dating. And then after, like, two months, you're like, okay. <laughs> like, now what? You know? Like, it kind of is like, all right, whatever. See, I think a lot of us get like that when our walk with Christ. See, for many of us, and for many, after you are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, right, the rest of your life, you know, for many people, they feel like the rest of their life is simply just waiting till heaven comes. All right, I'm saved, now I just wait for heaven. And for many, following Christ is a costly decision. And their understanding of the Christian life is one of only sacrifice and struggle. Many of you in this room, you're struggling with the idea of surrendering your life to Christ. I get that. You hear about how great it is or whatever, but like, you know, all you can really think about is all the stuff that you feel like you'd have to give up, you know? Like, okay, yeah, being freed from the bondage of sin is cool, but like, you understand, like, man, like, you know, like, if I do that, then, like, this thing in my life that I really enjoy doing, I probably have to give up. Or that relationship that you know would be strained if you fully committed to Christ. Like, the reason you're not fully committed to Christ is because of a relationship, and you know that that relationship would be strained if you actually did what you knew you should do. No matter the situation, leaving the known for the unknown, leaving the known of the bondage of slavery for the unknown of what a life life with Christ looks like, no matter how great people talk that life up to be, it's difficult. Leaving the known for the unknown is difficult, even if the known is slavery. Do you see the connection there? With the slaves in the United States when they were freed, they didn't go back to their masters because they enjoyed it. They went back to their masters because it's what they knew. They didn't know any different. They were afraid of what the unknown brought. And for many Christians, they get saved and they're like, all right. They just kind of like sit around waiting. Waiting for heaven to come, I guess. Or for Christ to return. Or whatever it may be. I've seen so many young people start out on fire for Jesus. And then after a few years or after they graduate high school, they find themselves in those dry seasons of life where they just, just doesn't seem like anything's really happening. Perhaps they're asking themselves, like, is this all there is? Maybe you are in this room and you're a Christian, but you find yourself in a dry season that is difficult for you to see the end of. You hear about the abundance that we have in Christ and you struggle to see that being a reality in your own life. 
You see your old group of friends on Instagram or on Snapchat, and you start thinking to yourself about how much better things were back when you were in bondage with them. See, if you spent any significant amount of time in church or around churchy people or whatever, you probably heard of like the 40 years in the wilderness all right, that the Israelites walked through. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Thank you. Right? Yeah. Right? You have the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. You've probably heard about this. But I think it's this thing that like the 40 years in the wilderness, like we know that it happened, but we don't really know what happened during that. You know what I'm saying? We just know it kind of was there. 40 years in the wilderness. Because after being slaves in Egypt for 430 years, the people of Israel leave Egypt in an incredibly miraculous way. This has, happens in the book of Exodus, right? If you know the Prince of Egypt, right? Anybody seen that movie? There we go. That's what I'm talking about. Cartoons and animation. We're like, yeah! All right? So what happens? The people, they're slaves in Egypt for 430 years. God, through Moses, frees the people performs incredible signs and wonders, brings plagues upon, e- plagues upon Egypt, frees them from slavery in Egypt, helps, splits the Red Sea. Think about that. Splits the Red Sea so that they can walk across on dry land. God performed all these incredible miracles and signs to make it possible for them to leave the bondage of slavery. But here's the thing. It wasn't just to leave slavery, but it was to go to the promised land. It wasn't just to leave the bondage of slavery, but it was to enjoy the fullness of life that God had promised for them in the land called Canaan. You're going to hear me use the word Canaan a lot. After crossing the Red Sea, the first stop on their journey is Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments. There we go, right? So the people cross the Red Sea. They travel south to Mount Sinai, and they camp at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai, and this is where we have this incredible, Moses has one of the most incredible encounters with God that we see in, the, in all of Scripture, right? He, God, he, God reveals his glory to Moses. It literally changes the way that Moses' face looks. He's on top of Mount Sinai for how many, how long? Bible trivia. How long was he on top of Mount Sinai? 40 days. Boom. That's another Slurpee, right? 40 days. During those 40 days, he receives the law, he receives the Ten Commandments. All these incredible things happen. The people of Israel are getting ready to set their course for the promised land. The land that is flowing with milk and honey. This was the abundant life that God had for his people. See, God had a purpose for his people. God didn't just lead the Israelites out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. It's not like he just led them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness and say, hey, at least you're not in slavery anymore. You need to know something. I want you guys to understand something. That you need to know that God saved you from bondage of sin and death but he also saved you to a purpose. This is going to be different than a lot of sermons that I give. Because I want you guys to understand something, that you weren't saved from sin, but you were saved to a purpose. You were saved to a purpose. And there's two kinds of Christians in the world. There's those that are still sitting at Sinai, and there's those that are contending for Canaan. 
First ones we want to look at are those that are sitting at Sinai. If you have your Bibles, Numbers chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all of the congregation, of all of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names every male headed by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you. He gives this list. Right? He gives this list of names. So in this first verse, we see something about the people of Israel. We see that they're camped out at Mount Sinai. I don't know about you, but for me, I always had in, this, in, in my mind this image of them. They went to Mount Sinai. They were there for like a hot 15 minutes, and then they headed out. That's just the way I, I pictured it. You just, yeah, you know. Or even the 40 days. Look at verse 1. How long does it say the people of Israel were at Mount Sinai? When did God speak to Moses? He spoke to him on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had left Egypt. What does that mean? They, were ha- they had been at Mount Sinai for over a year at this point. For over a year. Think about that. Like, how long have they been there? They've been there for over a year. They had just been sitting at the base of Mount Sinai for over a year. And surely at some point, somebody starts to ask, okay, now what? You guys ever seen Finding Nemo? Right? And, like, they're trying to escape the, the fish tank in the dentist's office. Right? Ever since I've seen that movie, every time I see a fish tank, I just, like, <laughs> you know, like, I just, like, my heart breaks. Uh, not really. I think, they're pretty, I think they're pretty dope. But anyway, uh, right? So, like, they, they escape, right? They get in the bags, and what happens is they, they, they escape. They make it to the ocean, and they're all in those plastic bags. And then, like, the puffer fish, I can't remember his name, uh, but he asks the question. What does he ask? Now what? Right? Because now they're stuck in these plastic bags. He's like, all right, now what? And surely someone had to be asking this. They're like, why are we here? What's the plan? They've been there for over a year, and statistics, not statistics, but historians and scholars say that there's about two and a half million of them. That's a lot. Two and a half million of them. Surely somebody would have been like, okay, what's the plan? What's the plan? Surely after a while, the questioning turns into complacency and comfort and even dryness. So during this year span, God had been giving laws and instructions. He established his covenant with them. He gave them the law. He instructed them on how that they are to live. And he, and he does all of this for a purpose. He gives them instructions on how they should live, how they should do these things, how they should live amongst people that are against them and and all this stuff. And here's the thing, why do they do this? Because God's plan was never for the people of Israel to remain at Mount Sinai. That was never the plan. The plan was never for them to stay at Mount Sinai. His plan was always for them to go into the abundance of Canaan. But here's the thing, Sinai is where he prepared them for Canaan. He brought them to Sinai. He brought them to Mount Sinai to prepare them for the promised land. But here's the thing. They went to Sinai, but they were never intended to stay there. They were always intended to go to the promised land. They were always intended to go to Canaan. And here's what I want you guys to know. That God's plan for your life does not stop when you're saved. 
God's plan for your life does not stop when you are saved. If anything, it's just getting started. I think a lot of us struggle with this. See, God saved you, of course, for your eternal standing with him because he loves you, but he saved you for an abundant life in Christ. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. Now, here's the thing. I want to be very clear. When I say abundant life in Christ, let me tell you what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the fact that everything in your life is going to go exactly the way you want it to go. You'll never lose hair. You'll never be sick. You'll never be sad. You'll never be tired. You're going to be wealthy. You're never going to be poor. (laughs) Yeah. Get used to eating ramen noodles. They're delicious. I don't know why it's a problem. Okay? Right? That's not what we mean by abundance. Here's what we mean by abundance. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God has a unique plan for your life, and that plan is for you to bring him honor and glory. And when you were, you were created and saved unto good works, you were saved from sin to good works. And when you perform these good works, people see your deeds, and what do they do? They give glory to your Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. So we walk, in, we walk in the works that God has called us to do, not so that we can be saved, but because we are saved, so we can bring honor and glory to Christ. And that's what the people of Israel were commanded to do. They were commanded to go into the land of Canaan, conquer the land of Canaan, and live as godly examples in the land of Canaan amongst pagan people of who God is to bring him honor and glory. That was their purpose. If you were here Sunday morning, how many of you were here Sunday morning when I preached? Okay, cool. Whoop, whoop, right? I preached a sermon uh, this past Sunday morning on the mission that we all have as Christians. That mission is to make disciples of all people. Our mission is to make disciples of all people. And here's the thing. When you are saved, you have joined in a mission that is greater than you could possibly fathom. Here's the thing, man. Our church and our student ministry does not simply exist for the sake of existing. We don't exist for the sake of having a good time. We don't exist simply so that Chick-fil-A can stay open. We exist to make disciples of all people. That's our goal. That's what we do. There is no other job. When we gather together, we gather together so that we can be encouraged and to be equipped for fulfilling the mission that God has given us. All the instructions and the commands that we see in Scripture flow to that main purpose of making disciples. This isn't just for the professional Christians or the ones who get paid. This is for all Christians. All Christians. And when you are living in obedience to this mission, when you are living within the will of God for how he has called you to fulfill this mission, that is living an abundant life. That's living an abundant life. Because here's the thing. The way that I fulfill the mission that God has given us as Christians to make disciples, the way that I fulfill that is going to be different than the way that you do. You fulfilling the mission that God's given you and you making disciples does not mean you're going to stand on a stage and preach. Maybe for some of you it is. And that's awesome. But I don't want you guys to to narrow your view to think that if you're not doing what I'm doing, you're not making disciples. No. Every single person in this room, God has, including adults, God has gifted you uniquely to fulfill the mission of making disciples and bringing him glory. Every single one of you in this room. And here's what I've learned. I've learned, and I truly believe this with all my heart, that God blesses obedience. 
God blesses obedience. He blesses those that are obedient to him. And whether it will be it, and sometimes he blesses us with physical things, sometimes he blesses us by giving in a divine amount of joy and contentment despite the circumstances. But nevertheless, God blesses obedience. As we pick up in Numbers, God is now preparing the people of Israel to head into Canaan. He's getting them ready to head into the promised land. Chapters 1 through 10 of Numbers are the preparations. Think about that. The first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. So the book of Numbers covers the 40-year span. And you can break it up into, into three chunks. The first 10 chapters is God preparing the people of Israel to leave. So chapters 1 to 10. Chapters 10 through 20 is them actually on their way to the promised land. On their way to the promised land, and, and eventually it's, it's wandering after they, reject, after they reject the promised land. And then chapters 20 through 36 is them on their way to the plains of Moab, where they eventually, a new generation prepares to enter the promised land and picks up in the book of Joshua. That's where you can kind of break it up. So the first 10 chapters, God is preparing them. Giving preparations that God gives the people before they head out. And think about this. Ten chapters of instructions on getting ready to go. And why, though? Why does he do this? Because God doesn't desire his people to just sit at the base of Mount Sinai for their entire life. And if we're honest, this is how many of us feel at times, though. Right? We've been saved by the blood of Jesus, and now we find ourselves just kind of sitting at Sinai. I'm saved, but I don't really know what I'm doing. We don't know exactly what God's will is for our lives, but we're pretty sure it's not what we're doing. We just kind of feel pretty dry and stagnant. We begin to even wonder, like, is this all there is? Is this all it is? Just I kind of come to church and hang out and have a good time every once in a while? Is that why I was led out of Egypt? Because if you think about it, if that's all I was led out of Egypt to do, then you know what, like... I might as well just go back. No, it's not all. God did not save you to sit. What I want for each one of you in this room to do is I want all of you in this room to discover what it is that God has gifted you with. I want you all to understand what is it that God has gifted you with and discover how you can bring him honor and glory with that. Why were the people of Israel at Sinai for so long? Because God was giving them instructions on how to live in Canaan while they were in Sinai. See, in order to leave Sinai, you got to be prepared to leave Sinai. And some of you have been saved for a while, and you're no spiritually, you're, and you're spiritually in the same spot you were when you were saved. I don't, I'm not saying I talk about anybody specific. I'm just saying chances are someone, some people in the room. I think of Hebrews. Where the author of Hebrews says, like, look, at this point, you, you ought to be teaching people, but you still need someone to teach you the basics. I'm not saying that about you. I'm saying that, like, this is in general. This is what we get to because we focus so much on getting people saved that once they're saved, we just drop them. And there's no discipleship. There's no growth. There's no pursuing the abundant life of obedience that God has called us to. Ask yourself, how much time do you spend in your week pursuing the purpose God has given you? Or are you just sitting at Sinai? He 
prepares them to leave, prepares them to go to the promised land. So we have people, we have sitting at Sinai, and then we have the second point, and that is those that are contending for Canaan. This is what we see in the first several chapters of the book of Numbers. Basically, God, asked, God commands Moses to take a census of the people. This is why it's called Numbers. Because they take a sense, there's two senses, censuses, census, census, I don't know what you say, right? Somebody look that up, don't do it now, never mind, right? A census, there's a census taken in the beginning, there's a census taken at the end, and basically the census at the beginning is what? What does he ask them to do? To ask them to take a census of all the men at least 20 years old and up, all that are fighting age, able to go to war. See, we need to live lives that are contending for Canaan, contending for the will of God in our lives and in the lives of others. But how do we do this? Here's the thing. We need to know that God's plan for you will include battles. See, there's something in, uh, when we talk about in the Old Testament, there's like types. You guys ever heard types? Anybody? No? Okay, that's fine. So there's types and shadows. So there's certain things in the Old Testament that are meant to reflect a truth in the New Testament. For instance, the, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament of sacrificing a lamb, right? Or, or when Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham takes his son Isaac up to the mountain and, you know, to offer his, him as a sacrifice. And as he's coming down with the knife, an angel says, Abraham, don't sacrifice the son. And there's a ram that's caught in the thicket. And what happens is the ram, Abraham sacrifices the ram instead of Isaac. You guys know that story, right? So what, what is that? The ram is a type and shadow of what? Of Jesus, right? Because Jesus was sacrificed instead of us, just like the ram was sacrificed instead of Isaac. It's a type, right? It's a type and shadow, right? And we see this a lot. There's, there's types and shadows all throughout Scripture. And a lot of times people like to refer to the promised land as a type and shadow of like heaven, of eternity, and, like, I get it. Like, there's a lot of old hymns that talk about, like, crossing the Jordan. Right? And that's, you know, that's fine. You know, it's cool. But I don't really think that's 100% accurate. And here's the reason. Because what happens once they enter the promised land, those of you who know? What do they have to do? They, they have to fight. Look, when you get to heaven, you ain't got to fight. Right? When you're in heaven, you're in heaven with Jesus. All the fighting's been done. So what is what? So first of all, we have to understand that the, the promised land is an actual, literal place. Okay, but what is it a type and shadow of? I really, what I believe it is, is the promised land is a type and shadow of an abundant life in Christ. And it doesn't happen by accident. People that have the joy of the Lord—that's just unexplainable. They don't have that by accident. Look, being a Christian is not easy. I talked about this Sunday. See, what does God do? He commands him to take account how many men you have of fighting age that are ready to go to war. Why does he do this? He, tells, he does this because Scripture tells us that he is counting all the men that are capable to go to war because the promised land was something that had to be worked for. See, we don't work for our salvation. Christ did that for us. God had a land for his people, but it was to be received by obedience and by belief. And as we go through the book of Numbers, what you're going to see is God is faithful to his people despite the fact that they're not faithful to him. They don't believe and they're disobedient, but he remains faithful to them. See, fulfilling the mission that God has given you is not an easy task. I spoke about this this past Sunday morning as well. But 
What did I just say? I'm so sorry. But, sorry. This is why we have faith in God, right? If it's not easy, it's not easy, but that's why we have faith in God. So you see, God often will test people. God will often test his people. You ever heard that? God tests people. But here's, let me ask you a question. Why do you think God tests people? Do you think God tests people to see if he, they actually believe in him? No. Why? Because God already knows that they believe in him. So if God already knows, then why is he testing them? I, I heard somebody say this, and I don't remember who said it. It's not original to me, so don't think that I'm like Nostradamus or anything. But it says, God, whenever God in the Bible, whenever we see God ask questions, it's never to gain information. It's always to reveal information. So we see God testing his people. What he's doing is he's testing them to show them where their faith lies. He already knows where their faith lies, but he's going to show them where it is. God already knows. God is testing you so that you will know if you actually believe in him or not. Here's what you need to know. To fulfill the mission that God's given you, there's going to be battles. Christian life is not an easy one, especially if you're fulfilling the mission of God. Let me ask you a question. How many battles were the Israelites facing at Mount Sinai? None. There was no battles at Mount Sinai. It was super comfy. Oh, as comfy as a desert could be. Right? I mean, wouldn't it have just been easier to chill back there and just kind of coast? Yeah, it would have. It would have been. Here's the thing. God did not make his people to sit back and coast. If you're in this room and you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God did not save you so that you could just sit back and coast. He didn't save you to sit. He's given us a mission to fulfill, and we need to strive for that mission. Second thing you need to know. Second way that we can contend for Canaan is, we do, one, we understand that there are battles that we're going to face. Secondly, we need to be able to do it with wisdom. Notice that the people of Israel are about to be counted by tribe. And there's an explanation, but basically the people of Israel, you can split them up into tribes. And each tribe, you can split into clans. Clans, you, you can split into families. Um, me and Colin, Colin, we talked about this this past week, right? The tribes, yeah. Uh, so, right, the, it's split into 12 tribes. And they're about to be counted by tribes. And at the end of chapter 1, you see that there are 603,550 men 20 years old and older that are of fighting age. Which is what leads scholars and historians to believe that there were about 2.5 million people if you take into account women and children. See, there's a great deal of confusion and disorder while navigating with 2.5 million people. Right? I mean, if, I, if you guys were with us when we'd gone to Fuge or whatever, not, not even Fuge, staycation this past year, we went to Aquatica, and we, like, tried to find, like, a spot for all of us to sit, and, like, it was just, like, 130 of us, and we were split into two, we, we got, we, right? Imagine 2.5 m- m- million people. That's a lot of people, right? Total confusion, like, totally lost, There's a great deal of confusion trying to navigate with that many people. So here's the thing. What does God do? God commands them to be counted by tribe. You see, as Christians, we're not commanded to move forward. Uh, Look, we're commanded to move forward without fear. Commanded to move forward boldly for Christ, but not recklessly and without wisdom. Allow God to give you wisdom on how he desires you to move forward. For them, it had to be orderly and structured. Don't think that just because somebody is going recklessly that they're the person that's the most obedient. Oftentimes not. 
Ask him to go with wisdom. Ask God to give you wisdom. Some of you are like, I don't know what it is that God, how God wants me to, I don't know what God wants me to do. Here's the thing, ask him. James says that you, you have not because you ask not. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. I love that verse. Think about it. What things can you think about in the Bible where the Bible says, if you ask God for this, he will give it to you. It says, if you ask for wisdom, he will give it. How often do you ask God for wisdom? If you ask, he will give it. See, here's the thing. Ask God for clarity and wisdom on how you should move forward with whatever it is that he's called you to do. Last thing, don't delay. If you want to contend for Canaan, if you want to fulfill the mission that God has given you, fulfill that purpose, don't delay. Verses 17 and 19 of Numbers chapter 1. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he listened to them in the wilderness of Sinai. Do you notice something here? You notice something. When did Moses receive the instruction? When did, when did God tell Moses to do this? The exact same day. God told Moses to do this. Here's how you're going to do it. And then what happens? They did it the exact same day. They didn't delay. They didn't push it off. They didn't wait until something else showed up. When God gives clear instructions, it's important that you obey when he calls you. It's important that you obey when he calls you. When God asks you to share the gospel with that friend that you have, don't delay. Don't delay. Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow and neither are they. I shared this with you guys back in March when we had a student, uh, a former student that passed away in a car accident. He was 21, I think. Died in a car accident suddenly. This is a guy that, like, I met with him, like, on a weekly basis. We'd go to Cracker Barrel, and we'd do discipleship together. And, and I watched him grow up when he was in middle school and, and, and all this stuff. And, and, you know, and, you know that, like, was a punch to the gut to hear that. But you know what's something that's incredibly encouraging to me, though? That I can look back on my time in his life and say I have no regrets of how I ministered to him. Not to say that I'm perfect, because I'm not. But I have no regrets. I have no regrets. I'm just, I want to tell you guys, have no regrets. You're only going to be in high school once. Some of you are almost done with high school. And you can't go back. Leave high school better than you came into it. Fulfill the mission that God has given you. Because here's the thing. While they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, if you fast forward to when they encounter Rahab at Jericho, what is it that, can, that actually brought Rahab to faith in God? It was the stories of what was happening with the people of Israel in the wilderness. See, don't think that just because you're in high school and you're not where you may want to be or whatever, don't think God's not using you because he is. You have a purpose. You have a mission that God has given you, and he has gifted you to accomplish that mission. And here's the thing you need to know. Pursue it. Find whatever it is and go for it. Knowing that God has grace when you fall. 
I would rather you fall moving forward than never fall standing still. We went to, um, we went to SLU this past year, which was cool. And one thing that we talked about, and it's a question that like blew my mind, and I always remember it. He said, what would you do for the glory of God if you knew you could not fail? I want to ask you guys that. What would you do for the glory of God if you knew you couldn't fail? And for those of you that are not Christians, maybe you're just like, I don't even know what all is going on. Here's the thing. If you... God, you are never, some of you are like, man, I don't even, I, I'm not even wanting to, here's the thing, like there's not a sin that you have committed that disqualifies you from the mission because God's grace is greater than your sin. Nothing that you have done has said, you know what, I'm not worthy of that mission. No, God is the one that calls you on that mission. He's the one that equips you for that mission and he is the one that will bring that, commi- that mission to fulfillment and completion. So as you leave this place tonight, as you go to Chick-fil-A, whatever it is, I want you guys to genuinely be praying, God, what is it that you would have me do? What is the mission that you have? For the people of Israel, it was to go to Canaan. And what we're going to talk about, in a, what we're going to talk about next week is what happens when they reject that. Don't be caught in that situation. Ask God, what is it that you have gifted me with and what is it that you've called me to do? I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer, and then I'm going to let you guys slide out of here. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word, God. I thank you for the fact that you are perfect and holy and awesome. God, I thank you for the fact that you did not just save us from sin, but you saved us to a purpose. And God, I ask that whatever it is that you that that whatever it is that you have gifted these students with, Father, every single one of them from from the oldest to the youngest, God, that you would help them to understand that you have gifted them. And they have a unique purpose. God, you did not save them to sit at Sinai, but you saved them for a purpose. God, I hope that, I ask that everyone in this room, God, that you would reveal it to them. God, I thank you for this night. I thank you for your, your word. And God, I ask that as we leave this place, that you would help us to bring honor. And glory.